0: Thank you, Tommy, and good morning, church. I'm thankful for the opportunity to open the word of the Lord to you all this morning. Before we get into our text and continue in our series to see the Savior in all of Scripture, let us pray, asking the Lord to open our eyes to see the Savior with eyes of faith. Jesus, as you once did on the road to Emmaus, And as you have continued to do for your people since, open our eyes this morning to see you in your word. May we see your glory and your salvation. May the Holy Spirit illumine our hearts so that the truth of your gospel and your faithfulness are seen. Jesus, these things are not easy and we are easily distracted. So I pray that you would help us this morning to be attentive to your word and your spirit. Help me to point us to the truth as we study your scripture together and see Jesus in it. We pray this in your name. Amen. In this mini-series over the next three weeks, we are trying to argue to you that three-fourths of that book that you have in your hands or is on your device is about one thing, that it has one main point or purpose. Most people would easily say that the New Testament is about Jesus and the fruits of what he accomplished, but we also believe that the Old Testament as well has one main point, one main purpose, and that is Jesus, all of it pointing to Jesus and what he would accomplish. But if we say that, if we say that all the Bible is about Jesus, all of the Old Testament stories from Genesis to Malachi, we are also saying that all of history is about Jesus. All of it centered around one main point. And why would that be the case? Because this book in your hands is not just a book of made-up stories, propaganda of a bygone era. This is truth the true telling of real events that happened to real people. It is true, faithful, and it's the inerrant word of the Lord. In February of this year, Grace Point Church in Nashville posted a helpful graphic online of what the Bible is and what the Bible isn't. And I say helpful not because what they posted was in any way true or good or right, but because it's a helpful reminder of where our culture is going with so-called progressive Christianity and where, with the Lord's help, we will never go. The Bible is, it said, a a product of community, a human response to God, a library of texts. The Bible is not, it said, the word of God, self-interpreting or has a point within itself outside of us, or errant, or infallible. And so the claim that says that this book is all about Jesus says something that might be new to you, but also says something that is not popular and even condemned by other so-called Christians. May we not go there. Instead, let us turn to the Bible, seeing it as a faithful recounting of the history of God's people and his plan, all of which beginning to end, which centers around Jesus. And hopefully, we are going to see that this morning by looking at just one text in the book of Numbers. Now, Numbers is probably not your favorite book to turn to before you lay your head down on your pillow at night. That is, unless you're trying to fall asleep really fast. But actually, I don't think that should be the case, as this book is an exciting story of twists and turns about the history and journey of God's people, the Israelites, as they wander in the desert. The title, Numbers, was given to this book because much of the beginning of it deals with the registration of God's people, as we see in chapter 1. However, if we were to adopt the Hebrew translation as our title, we would call it the Book of Wilderness as it recounts the Israelites wandering in the desert, which I think is a fitting title. And so Numbers 21 is a story about a sinful people who rebel against God, and yet God provided the means for their salvation. And ultimately for us, It's pointing to Jesus, whom God provided for our salvation. And we'll see this in three movements this morning. One, voices lifted up, verses four through six. Number two, the serpent lifted up, verses seven through nine. And number three, the son of man lifted up, which we'll find in John chapter three. Voices lifted up, serpent lifted up, and the son of man lifted up. When my wife, Alyssa, and I moved to Indy from northern Wisconsin in January of 2019, we took a short two-month break before we uh, found jobs and kind of got back to real life. We called it our early retirement. Uh, But we went on a few trips, we unpacked, we explored a little bit. But with all that, we still had more time on our hands than we knew really what to do with. And so, naturally, we turned to the Avengers film series. And before that, we had seen a movie or two here and there, but let me tell you, 23 movies later in sequence, 50 hours of action-packed content, and the thing that was absolutely mind-blowing to me was the threads and the connections that were weaved from one movie to the next, bringing everything into a satisfying whole and conclusion. And it reminded me that jumping into the middle of a story is nothing like starting from the beginning and running to the end. And the same is true for Numbers 21, or for any text you might read in your Bible, or for the whole Bible itself. There is a story, and if we start in the middle, it will not make nearly as much sense. So, let's spend just a few minutes building this story in Numbers before we dive into it. At the beginning of the book of Numbers, the Israelites are camped at Mount Sinai after leaving Egypt. God had promised to make this people a great nation and to give them a place to dwell. He would be their God and they would be his people. And after the giving of the law in Exodus at the mount, the people responded to God. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient and then for the first 10 chapters of Numbers, the people are still dwelling near Mount Sinai, worshiping the Lord, eating the miracle food from heaven. But all of that changes in verse 11 of chapter 10, where it says the presence of God lifted from the tabernacle, and they then set out. And we should ask, well, where were they going? They were going to the promised land, of course, the land of Canaan that God was going to give them. But if you are at all familiar with this story, you know that things don't go so well. The first verse of the very next chapter in chapter 11 says, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. They complained about the food God was providing and they wished to go back to Egypt instead of honor and follow God. And so in verse 10 of chapter 11 It says, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And this complaining people continued to complain to God and spurn his will as they marched their way through the desert, heading to the promised land. And when they finally arrive at the promised land, after this long journey through the desert, what report did the spies bring back of the land? The people are too big. This is going to be too hard. We can't do it. We'll die. And they said to God, we would rather have died in the, in the desert. We would have rather died in Egypt. Why did you lead us here? And so they rebelled against God and his plan. They didn't trust God to keep his word. And so the Lord promises judgment in return. And we see that in Numbers 14. For 40 years, they would wander in the desert. And this generation who rebelled against God would die in the desert, and they would not see the promised land. And in between Numbers 14 and 21, we see the 40 years filled with more rebellion and more death. And all that brings us to Numbers 21, near the end of that 40 years of wandering. As we begin our text today in Numbers 21, let us reread the first two verses, seeing the voices lifted up. Verse four, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. If you thought lifting up voices was going to be a good thing, well, you see here, it is not. And they're wandering. They again lift up their voices. And what is their complaint this time? I see at least four quick things. Number one, a bad God. They spoke against God. They became impatient with God, ungrateful for how he has preserved them and spared them. All right, despite their grumbling and their complaining and their rebellion, the Lord had been faithful. And yet they turn against God and they blame him. Number two, a bad leader. Not only do they blame God, but they lift their voice against Moses. They blame Moses for their misfortunes, even though time and time again, Moses pleaded to God on their behalf, saving them from their sins, rescuing them from judgment. Right now, they can only see their current struggles. Their stomachs are growling and their eyes are blinded. And Moses is blamed for poor leadership. Number three, a bad plan. Why have you led us out of Egypt to die, Lord? Here again is that similar refrain, Egypt was good and God's plan is bad. How backwards is that? I'd rather have died in Egypt as slaves with food than under the miraculous provision of God. And number four, bad food. We loathe this worthless food. We may think it a little petty for the Israelites to complain about miracle food from heaven. But I'm not sure I or maybe you would be any better. Ask yourself this, how many times can you open the fridge and pull out the same container of leftovers before you just can't eat another bite and it conveniently falls into the trash? I know for me it's about three, and after that, nope, no more. I'm done with it. And I don't say that to justify their complaining or their hearts, but to help us to pause and to keep us from our high horses. We may not have been all that different from the ones we read about in Scripture. We may have also lifted our voices in the desert against the Lord and his plan. And I wonder if this is still a common theme in our own hearts today. Do we lift our voices against God and his plan? Do we complain about the plans the Lord has for us? Complaining is an attitude of the heart that says nothing is ever enough. We are not satisfied or content with where the Lord has us. What areas in your life do you struggle to trust God or to be content We've all had to endure a pretty crazy year. Has it been hard to trust God through this year of trials? Or maybe more specific areas in your life, in your jobs? Unhappy, high demands, feeling stuck, overbearing bosses that won't give you a break. Where is the Lord in that? Or what about finances? Finances. This year has brought on a particular trial of financial burdens for many in this room. Is the budget tight? Has it been tight for a while and the tunnel is still dark at the end, unable to see the light? How long, O oh Lord? Maybe in sickness or health concerns. We have many in our church, as we just prayed, who are bearing a health burden. Why? Oh Lord, how long? Or maybe it's in the home, challenging children who don't honor authority, friction in marriage that seems unending. How long, oh Lord, must we endure? Or maybe confusion or frustration in growing your family. Desire to be pregnant, but the Lord isn't granting that request. An adoption process that's taking way too long. Or maybe it's a child or a grandchild that's spiritually lost. Or even a parent or a sibling that doesn't know the Lord. In all these things, what does it look like when you raise your voice to the Lord? Does it mirror Numbers 21 in a stream of complaining and frustration Do those around you only hear a heart full of bitterness at where the Lord has placed you or who he has placed around you? Or does lifting up your voice mirror King David in Psalm 13? I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And isn't that true? But for the Israelites, they rebelled against God. And as God promised, he brings judgment. Verse six says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Commentators note at least two things about God's use of serpents here. Number one, but in the Bible, serpents are representative of evil and of wickedness and sinfulness. Genesis 3 ought to come to mind. And we should see them being used against Israel here as a direct judgment against their sin, as a reminder of the wickedness of their ways. But secondly, number two, Professor Andrew Nasselli notes that in the Bible, serpents are tied most closely to Egypt. Passages in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah all describe Egypt in serpentine type of language. And even history maybe shows us a type of religion built around serpents or the cobra. Or when Moses confronted Pharaoh and his staff turned into a snake and swallowed the Egyptian snake, Many people note that's a picture of God swallowing up the Egyptian God in one swift gulp. And then Professor Niseli says this on Numbers 21, in somewhat of a cheeky kind of voice, I think. He says, God sent poisonous snakes among them to provoke them to repent. It's as if God said to the complaining Israelites, so you miss Egypt? Well here you go, have some snakes, the signature animal that Egypt worships. And so God sends snakes so that they may have a visual and physical picture of God's judgment upon their sin and their complaining, reminding them of the wickedness of Egypt and what would await them if they returned there. And as a picture, I think of their spiritual unfaithfulness and unwavering before and wavering before God, they lifted their voices against God and God brought judgment upon them. And then comes the turn in the story in verse seven, the serpent is lifted up movement number two, and we'll move quicker through these next two points. Here we see the faithfulness of God to provide the means for their salvation. We see their repentance, God's plan for salvation, and the faith of the people to turn and look. As Naselli noted, God's judgment has a purpose. And we see here that it accomplishes what it was meant to. The people spoke for a second time, but this time it's very different. Rather than speaking against God and against Moses, they came to moses verse 7 and the people came to moses and said we have sinned for we have spoken against the lord and against you pray to the lord that he take away the serpents from us they repented of their sin and sought to draw near to god once again and isn't this a beautiful picture of heart change and right and a right response to sin They draw near to the one who can help them. Do we draw near to God in our need? When sin puts us in a state of helplessness, do we run from God? Do we try to hide? Do we become paralyzed by fear or shame? Or as they came to God, do we draw near to our father who can help us in our helplessness? And in an abundance of mercy, God responds to their pleading. Verse eight, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. Have you or someone you've known had a plan that didn't really make a whole lot of sense to you and seemed like a really bad idea but somehow by the Lord's grace, it actually ended up working. In 2012, a dramatization of a true story hit the film world titled Argo. It's a story of a successful rescue operation when the US Embassy in Iran was taken over in 1979. When a few of the hostages escaped, the fear for their safety increased and the CIA hatched a rescue mission. And the plan that they landed on in order to infiltrate the country and rescue the captured hostages was to pretend to be movie makers seeking a new location for their science fiction movie. I've just got to wonder, when that plan was hatched, how many thought this is a bad idea? This doesn't really make any sense. But now imagine that you're an Israelite living in tents in the desert, and people all around you, many as the text says, are dying because snakes are slithering through your camp, biting people, leaving their venom and a trail of bodies behind. And when you call out to God, he says, Moses, I want you to craft a statue and place it in the middle of the camp so that people can look at it. And you might say, what? Lord, we know your power. We remember the signs that you did in Egypt. Why not just remove the snakes and heal us? Why use up this precious time to make this statue while people are dying around us? Would we think God's plan made any sense? Maybe not. But is this not what God said? Is this not God's plan for salvation, even if it didn't make any sense to them? Even if it seemed like foolishness to human wisdom, folly to the world. And yet God called them to trust him, trust that his plan was worth believing in, that maybe he is doing more than we can see. Maybe we don't have the full picture. And then the salvation that God promises comes true in verse nine. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. An act of faith followed by salvation. Look and live. The snake was lifted up, placed in the middle of camp, like the Lord said. And if you had faith in the word of God, you looked at the bronze snake and you lived. They needed eyes of faith that trusted in God's plan. And if they looked, if they cast their eyes upon the lifted up snake, God healed them. They experienced salvation from the punishment of their sin for rebelling against God. God heard their voices and he provided the means for their salvation. They looked and they lived. Which brings us then to our final point, the son of man lifted up. Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament is not always an easy task. It requires hard work and patience, but the benefits are oh so great. And the best place to start, I think, is by asking one simple question. What does the New Testament say about my Old Testament passage? Does it quote it? Does it reference it? Parallel it? Allude to it? And if it does, which is not always the case, but if it does, we should start there. And we should see how the scripture interprets itself. And if by chance the If by chance Jesus references your Old Testament text, like is the case with our text, we best heed the advice of my Old Testament professor when he said, you better pay attention. So let's pay attention to John 3 and see how Jesus' use of Numbers 21 helps us find him in the Old Testament. So go ahead and turn there to John chapter 3. It's the story of Nicodemus who comes to Jesus by night where they have a discussion about the kingdom of God and the spiritual new birth. And Jesus says that Nicodemus must be born again to enter the kingdom, which confuses Nicodemus as the laws of nature seem to prohibit that. And so he says in verse 9, how can these things be? And look how Jesus answers him verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Are you not supposed to be versed in the Old Testament as a teacher of God's word? What's Jesus expecting here of Nicodemus? Is it not is he not expecting that by reading and studying the Old Testament that Nicodemus should have found life in the true kingdom of God? That true life was spoken of in the Old Testament. And then what does Jesus say in verse 14? Have you read Numbers 21? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That story that you've read in the Old Testament, that is a picture of me. So must In a like manner, Jesus must be lifted up. But it's one thing for us to see that a passage points to Jesus, and another to see how it points to Jesus. So in what ways is Numbers 21 like and yet unlike Jesus' story? I think a few similarities stand out right away. The serpent was lifted up for all to see, just as Jesus will be lifted up on a cross for all to see. The bronze serpent offered life, just as Jesus offers life. The Israelites were called to look with faith that they might live. Likewise, Jesus says, whoever believes, whoever turns to Jesus to look upon him will live. But obviously, Jesus is not like the bronze serpent, he is greater than the bronze snake. As is always the case, Jesus is greater than the shadows of the Old Testament. There is an amplification of his work and his reward. So here are three quick ways that Jesus's work on the cross is amplified compared to Numbers 21. Number one, a greater penalty For the Israelites, the penalty for their rebellion against God was physical death. Death by venom. And yet, what do we know about the state of those who do not know Jesus? Their death is a spiritual death, an eternal death by a spiritual venom, which is sin. The stakes are higher because eternity is in the balance number 2 a greater payment a little money a little time a little effort and there you go moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole in the middle of the camp but as john 3:13 says the son of man descended from heaven the son of god the priceless blood of jesus shed for us the precious love life of the Lord given for us. The payment that was needed was for Jesus to bear our sin. He who had no sin became sin for us. He who had no sin took the venom of our sin upon himself. He is the cost of our salvation. A greater payment was needed to produce a greater reward, which is the third point. A greater penalty, a greater payment, and a greater prize. Numbers says that those who looked on the serpent, they lived. They were saved from the venom of the snakes and survived the punishment of their sin. And yet, ultimately, they still died. They did not escape death forever. They died in the desert. But what does Jesus' sacrifice offer us? It offers eternal life for those who believe in him, for those who are helplessly lost in their sin, bound for eternal death. Jesus has purchased a greater reward, eternal life, life now and forever with Jesus. And what is Jesus's line of conclusion in John chapter three? Might it not be in part John three sixteen? If you were to cross off that heading in your Bible there, you may see that after bringing to mind the life and death situation of the Israelites, and after saying, He, Jesus, in a similar way to the serpent that was offered for temporary salvation for those who were perishing in the wilderness by venomous snakes, that He, Jesus, offers eternal salvation for those who are perishing because of the venom of sin, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is the call for those who do not believe and for those who do to come to Jesus I wonder, for those of you who do not yet know Jesus, has this past season made you feel helpless? Helpless to bring about relief? All of us really helpless to stop the virus and the far-reaching effects of it? Helpless to help a lonely loved one? Helpless to provide for yourself or your family? Has it not felt like so much is happening around us and yet we have no control over it? Well, that helpless feeling is really just a small picture of our helplessness before God. Our rebellion against God causes a great need that neither you nor I could ever fulfill. But God has provided Jesus for you. Only Jesus can fulfill all that is needed because he has already accomplished everything necessary when he was lifted up. Only Jesus can keep you from perishing by offering you a restored relationship with God. Come to Jesus today. Trust in his forgiveness. Have faith in his salvation and find true life. You do not have to remain helpless. If you have more questions about that, ask the person that brought you or come find one of us up front. We would love to help you meet Jesus today. For those of you who do trust in Jesus, I encourage you to remember that only Jesus has kept us from perishing from the venom of sin that once poisoned us we too lived in helplessness before God, unable to help ourselves. And a story in closing. On February 15th of this year, my little girl Anaya turned one. And I just have to say, being a dad to a little girl is just the best. It's just so much fun. I love her so much. My heart just bursts for her. About two weeks before she turned one, beginning of February, she came down with some kind of virus. And I'll say at the beginning that she's okay. Everything ended up being fine. But on Thursday of that week, she woke up in the middle of the night crying, incredibly warm to the touch and lethargic in her demeanor. We had been monitoring her temperature all day as it went up and down, we had been in contact with the doctor. But when she woke up and we took her temperature again, the thermometer flashed red, it beeped and it beeped, and it displayed a temperature of 106.2. We called the doctor again and within five minutes, we were on the way to the ER. And as we arrived at the ER like many, many others during this season, I pulled up to the emergency door and I watched as Alyssa and Anaya got out of the car and walked into the ER. And I, being the second parent, had to drive away and sit in the car in the parking lot as I waited to see if my little girl would be okay. And I didn't know. I waited for text messages from Alyssa She tried to keep me updated of what what was happening, but as I sat in the car waiting for the report, one overwhelming feeling washed over me, and that was helplessness. Helpless to provide relief, helpless to provide comfort, helpless to protect my little girl. And in that moment, where did my helplessness lead me? To the Lord, it is okay to be helpless in the hands of a good God who loves us and who provided Jesus for our ultimate and eternal salvation. And so with eyes of faith, let us continue to look to Jesus and live. Let's pray. Jesus, only you can save Only you can fix our need and our helplessness. Only you, Jesus, were able to give your life so that our measureless debt could be erased. Only you, Jesus, could be lifted up on that cross in our place. Help us, Lord, to trust in you and in your salvation. Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. Jesus, our glory and our prize, we adore you, behold you, our Savior ever true. O oh, Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Amen.